Good? Yeah, great. Brilliant. Um, thanks so much for, uh, you know, I, you're such a good folk. Bless you. You know, uh, it's good. God's good, isn't he? Yeah, okay. I used to say it in my other church. I think I said it before. God is good, and you say all the time. And you're good some of the time. Okay. All right. Um, so just a little bit of context. I, I, I gave my life to the Lord way back in 1970. I think it was about two. No, it wasn't. It was a bit older than that. But at any rate, um, I, 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 and this gives you a little bit of context. Um, it's, it was in the house 17 Cypress Avenue. Cypress Avenue is a very famous place. But I met there, so I did. Um, it was owned at the time by a, a former elder of Ulster Temple, uh, Elam Church. I was one of the young people there, and we decided to go there. We were invited. Um, one of his sons was my mate, and we went, and there was a crowd of us as young people went there. And 17 Cypress Avenue is a big, long drive up to it. Mr. Paisley bought it off him, and Mrs. Paisley still lives in the house. That gives you a bit of context to it. And we were there, and we, at that particular time, there was an awful lot of stuff that was going about that was not of God. It was, uh, there were Ouija boards, there were Horace, there were all sorts of stuff. And I can remember as a young person going into another room with a group of us and something happened. I can't fully remember what it was, but something happened that scared the jelly life out of me in front of a mirror. And it was then I was terrified. And as a result of that, praise God, all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. There were two Christians that gate Christ the whole thing, two believers that were mature enough to be able to grab us and literally lead us to the Lord. That actually, that whole encounter led to, for the first time in that church's history, 18 of us as young people giving their lives to the Lord and going through the waters of baptism together. But it also brought an awareness to me that there is an enemy out there. There is not just a God who's a good God and the stuff that you see a lot of times that try to predict people's future, there is always something behind it. And with regard to that, I recognize the world that we are now living in. We have got to have the real thing. I, I, I give you a quote here, and I don't want to miss it, but I like it. It's one of my favorite quotes. And it's about believers who, to some degree, have the appearance of godliness, but are not just breaking through. And that's one of the things that I want to speak about this morning. And here it is. Here's the quote. But as bald men with cheap hair pieces always seem to forget, acting as though you have something and actually having it are not the same thing. And anyone who looks closely can tell the difference. And I just want to, to, to relate that to each of us that have a relationship with God? And is it the relationship that you believe that Christ died to save you into? Or are you having something that's maybe not an, a cheap imitation, but you know there's more? God has a name, and it's not God. God's name is Yahweh. But why does God need a name in the first place? And I want to, I'm going to pretty much stick to my notes here this morning because I, I don't want to get carried away and go down a, a, a rabbit trail and, and, and 
miss what I want to say. So for that reason, please forgive me. I'm going to just make sure I, I transmit what I want to say to you. Um, but God has a name. And his name is Yahweh. And it's incredibly important that we know him and that we don't just discard everything else that's there. The Bible claims that there is only one true creator, God, who made everything and the word was born out of the overflow of his creativity and love. The book of 1 Kings tells the story of Israel's rise under King Solomon, but also illustrates the country's downfall due to Solomon's pagan, foreign wives. The author lists off a number of ancient gods. Nowhere does he say that these were not gods, small g, or false gods, small g, or a con for a superstitious age. We live in incredibly difficult times. I speak to many of those that are not church people, but they are literally terrified for their children and grandchildren because of the world that they're being born into. The, 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 the city and, and the city that literally drives the economy of the UK is London and it's, it's led by an Islamic mayor, a mayor. It's not like a sort of Lord Mayor of something that, that, that drives the economy. Our country is led by a Hindu prime minister I know what you're thinking, please. I am not racist in any way, shape, or form. But these are foreign gods that God warned about and that the church need to realize and not determine someone because, but he's a nice person, and he probably is a nice person. But the, the reality of it is there is something, and he, he's not like a lot of Christians who, well, I go to church and every now and again, and I do this here, he is a worshiper of Hinduism. Michael Heiser, that um, I was introduced to just, a, just a, a recent years ago and brought out a whole new revelation to me with regard to how we need to be aware and alert to many of the supernatural things. I would encourage you to get one of his books, even Supernatural, it's called. It's, a, it's an academic appraisal of literally this. This was the thing, this verse of Scripture in Psalms 82, these verses, this passage, is, passage of Scripture in Psalm 82, 1 to 6, says this here. Listen to this. God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods, small g. How long will you defend the unjust? Show partiality to the wicked, he says. He's saying to them, if you can imagine this council in the heavenlies of these gods, and Yahweh sitting in council, and he's pointing the finger at them, and he's saying to them, how long? Will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. That's what he's challenging them. Now rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. The gods know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. This is what... Yahweh is saying, I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. See, the Bible describes a divine council, which is a group of divine beings who rule over the earth. It is well-known imagery from the ancient world, divine beings who rule over the earth. The Bible describes a spiritually dense world in which we live in, spiritually dense full of both human and non-human beings. Some of them love God, while others hate him and rage against his existence. Now, you can use the word angels and demons 
and stuff like that. But that's not really what the Bible uses. The Bible uses God's small g much more than any. I think demons are only mentioned twice in the Old Testament. Some of them are good, while others are evil and noxious. Jesus spent the bulk of his time helping, listen, religious people see that a lot of what they thought about God was absolutely wrong. And we have a very misconstrued aspect of God in, in that we, we, we use very limited terminology. I, I was I, um, officiated at a wedding just two weeks ago, three weeks ago. And I met a guy that I hadn't seen for some time. And I said to his older brother, what is it you call him? Because he came over and said hello to me and he knew me and I forgot his name. And, 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 and he says, that's boy. And I says, yeah, but what's his name? No, he says, that's boy. He says, that's all we ever called him, boy. And I thought to myself, can we be a wee bit like that with God? That it's so vague. He, he was the youngest in the family Kind of said, boy, way down to the shop. Boy, do this and boy, do that. But listen to how in Matthew 5, how you see that a lot of what they thought about during the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was correcting about God. And he said this here, wrong theology they had. You've heard it said, but I say to you. In other words, I'll not go through it all, but you'll be able to read that, that passage of Scripture in, in verse 38 and on. So it's Jesus, where Jesus was correcting their theology with their wrong thinking, and he was saying, you've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, but I say to you. And then he would tell a story that was radically different and out of step about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is like, and he would tell, which was totally foreign to what they were listening to. For Jesus and all the writers of Scripture, the starting point for all theology is the realization that we don't know what God is like. We really don't know what God is like, but we can learn. We can learn. But to learn, we have to go to the source and that means we need revelation. Otherwise, we end up with all sorts of erroneous and godly and good, not godly, goofy and untrue and maybe even toxic ideas about God. I read a book by J.B. Phillips years ago. J.B. Phillips wrote a translation for his Sunday school of the New Testament, the J.B. Phillips translation. But he also wrote about your God is too small. And he talks about how that some people have a perception of God as somebody that is incredibly stern, if you, yes, if you stay al along those lines, in between those lines, I'd be good to you, but you be here either side of them and you'll find my wrath. Others of a policeman. Some even had a concept of like Santa Claus and wrong ideas about gods that are not real. In Exodus, we read about Yahweh saving Israel out of slavery in Egypt. There's a line in Exodus 12 where Yahweh says, I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. Scripture is first and foremost a story, and it's a story about God. We want to make the story about us, and there are all sorts of incredible principles in the Word that can relate to us in the Bible, but honestly, that's just not what the story is about. If you strip the Bible down to the very core, it's a story about God and about how we as people relate to God. And in this story, there are climactic moments when the door swings open and we get a brand new compelling and at times terrifying version of who God is. 2 Corinthians 10 says this, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare 
are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Here's the crucial part of this, because if you miss this part of the verse, you miss it all, and it says this here. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. I could, I could tell you the times when I was going through tough times, how I got deflected from what God was thinking in the situation. I could think about other things and be deflected from it. You see, a stronghold in the times of the Apostle Paul was a base of operations fortresses where people lived. Even today in news reports, we hear of strongholds of different groups in Iraq and Syria. Paul is saying that there are spiritual strongholds and these strongholds need to be torn down. In the verses we've just read, Paul describes a spiritual stronghold as being attitudes, knowledge, philosophies, teachings, and mindsets that oppose the knowledge of God. So if we're going to have the plumb line of God's truth that would come down from God to earth and we're going to compare everything to that plumb line, Paul is saying any mindset, any thinking, any attitude, any philosophy that raises itself up and opposes the truth of God is a stronghold. Don't miss it. The world is desperately trying to shape it into its mold. It's not sufficient for you to say, look, I don't approve of that, but you know what? I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to, no, because the other side comes now and says, no, I want your approval. I don't want your just don't care. We live in a world today that is desperately trying to shape our thinking desperately trying to block everything that would in any way rise up against what the current narrative is. So if we're going to have the plumb line of God's truth that would come down from God to earth and we're going to compare everything to that plumb line, Paul is saying any mindset, attitude, thinking, philosophy that opposes it is a stronghold. We now live in a culture that for certain issues, listen, think about what I'm saying and you will see this, that even for certain issues, to even express an opinion that is contrary to the narrative that is put out, at the very least, you are castigated or you are even, some cases, lose your job. That's the reason Paul says in Romans 12 too, that we're not to be conformed to this world, but we're be to, tr to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And this is how we attack and destroy strongholds. I love Bill Johnson's quote in this. You'll know it. I can't, I can't afford to have a thought in my head about me that God doesn't have in his See, it's a natural concept for us who have a Western culture and way of thinking to separate life from knowledge. We think if we get ahead knowledge of something, we've learned it, but that's not truth. Truth is only truth when we act it out in our lifestyle. Otherwise, we've just acquired information. Paul says we have to have a mindset that's going to change how we live. So if my life was not changed and affected by what I learned, then I didn't learn. And if I didn't learn, then teaching didn't take place. And there are strongholds that need to be torn down. And he says that we have divinely powerful weapons that are able to do that. Now let me make this statement because you would not believe how many people have come to me and said to me, but we live in a different world, Pastor. 
So let me make this statement as a reference point. This is a reference point. Anything else will get us into trouble. So here it is. God's truth is absolute. Anybody got a problem with that? God's truth is absolute. God's truth does not shift or change. Do you agree with that? God does not become more culturally relevant or politically correct. Do you know, the world that existed almost 2,000 years ago is a replica to what we are going through today. The, let me tell you this here in case you didn't know it, but the devil hasn't had a new thought from he was kicked out of heaven. So he will use exactly the same stuff. The only problem is that we are so gullible at times, and I include myself in this. So this was not formulated by the apostles, but it was formulated by the early church. And they knew how easy it would be to be deflected by what the world was putting out there, right, left, and center, so that they could come under pressure. So they would, they'd, they'd be under pressure to conform, to conform to the stuff that was going out there. Stuff that emanated from the Roman Empire and the, all of the, the vulgar stuff that was going on, the wickedness and everything else that was there. And, and they said, it's imperative that we give you an overview of everything that you're meant to believe. It's not enough, even if they had a Bible, just to throw it down there. It's not enough. It's not enough just to... You need to get this in a nutshell. You need to get this gospel in a nutshell. And they developed the Apostles' Creed. Listen to it. So that they would know, here's the basics. I can't veer from the basics to the right or to the left. This is what he said. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. That's an abbreviated version of the Nicene Creed that was, that was formulated in Nicaea. But there's nothing missing out of that that is crucial to your salvation. It encapsulates it all. You see, God's truth is absolute. That's why his truth is able to move and transcend from culture to culture. You see, you listen to the news, you listen to the stuff that's going on, before long you'll start to say, you know something, I want to be a reasonable person. I want to live and let live. I want to do this. I want to do, this. you know, I just want to be a reasonable. You know, I, I love George Bernard Shaw. I don't like him too much, but I remember this quote that he said. He said this here, the reasonable man, you're listening, I've got this off by heart. I never forgot it because I've been using it for years. If you want to be reasonable. The reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable man adapts the world to himself. Therefore, all progress is down to the unreasonable man. The reasonable man would have been contented living in caves. You live in a house today because somebody said there's got to be more than this. Progress. Progress. Everything. That, that, and that was what God put into us. The ability to make what he made good into becoming very good. He created sound, man-made music. He gave us grain, man-made bread. It's coming from good to very good. And that's God's ordination for each one of us. But once you say, well, you know, I, I just stuff grain in my mouth or corn in my whatever. 
And that's, that's the challenge that every single one of us come under. His truth is able to move and transcend from culture to culture, from century to century, from millennia to millennia, over and over again, because God and his truth are absolute. Paul wants us to know we need to have that reference point, that plumb line of truth. So if you ever feel pressed, pressured, if you ever feel pressed to go down a specific route, this is how it's so important because we lose our faith then. We lose our, our plumb line. This also relates to how we live. John 8, 31, 32 says, Jesus says, you are truly my disciples if you keep obeying my teachings. You are truly my disciples if you keep obeying my teachings. His words. We tend to think, is he talking about rules? I, I just can't cope. I'm, I'm going to mess up with, with rules. No, he's saying, my teachings, listen to what I'm saying. Hear what I'm saying. Hear what my word says. And if something is in conflict with my word, where do we go to? If you hear anything preached up here that is totally contrary to God's word, where do you go to? Do you believe the pastor? Do you believe George? Or do you believe the word? Always. That's the reference point. It has to be. It has to be. I'm going to try and pull this around and bring it. When Jesus approached Peter and the other disciples as they were cleaning their nets, he didn't say, follow me and I'll save you. And I'll get you to heaven. He said, follow me and I'll make you to become something. We have in some ways sanitized this that the gospel is all about getting people to heaven. Remember uh, a guy called Sid Murray. Sid Murray was a convert at Pastor Jim McConnell's. He lived just at the back of where I lived, Sid. Sid was, he was a character. He really was. He used to preach and then he, he was literally on his, his, his wife, this is it, his wife, Lily, sent him out one day with money to get a prescription for the, babe, for the child. And Sid drank it. And when he got home, the baby was dead. That was the lifestyle that said he was an, you know, he just literally, he was an addicted to, to so many things. And he got gloriously saved. And his wife got saved under Jim McConnell. And he used to say we expressions like this, from heron bone picking to roast beef and chicken. He used to say we, we little expressions like that, you know, and he had a load of them. So we had, absolute load of them. And, um, uh, Sid, Sid was, was, was one of those characters, so he was, you know, I forgot what I was going to say to you. That was the reason why I was telling you about, about Sid. Um, but let me go on, it'll come back to me. Oh, I, Sid became literally, his life totally turned around and he became an incredible witness for God. Led so many, many people to Christ and, and, and um, see it, it's listen to this when Jesus approached Peter and the other disciples he cleaning their nets he said follow me and I'll save you to become not just to, uh, came back I knew it would come back it said took a, 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 an evangelistic meeting and, and carried off I had asked him to come and if he would do it and uh, there was a young fellow, and he struggled with the dick, struggled with cigarettes, mainly cigarettes he struggled with. And, uh, but he gave his life to the Lord. And uh, he was coming down the road one day and, and said, seen him coming in the opposite direction. And the young lad was smoking away. And, and he didn't know what to do. He nearly swallowed the cigarette. 
And, and he said to Sid, and Sid in his wisdom, he said to Sid, oh, Sid, I'm, I'm struggling with this here. Uh, it'll not keep me out of heaven, Sid, will it? And Sid said to him, no, son, it'll get you there quicker. <laughs> See, the word, so it's not just about, it's about keeping his word, not about keeping rules. Not about believing back again that your thinking is that God's on my side provided I do this, 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 and this. It's like we're not talking about living totally disobediently. But the reality of it is it's about his words bring life, not death. It's completely, you see, the word translated as no is an experiential knowledge talking about he drives this home by telling them if you keep obeying my teachings then you will know the truth and that word know is an experiential knowledge it's not a, an informational or head knowledge it's knowledge that I experience knowledge that I experience it's completely different from the Greek or western mindset or of knowledge that affects the head but doesn't affect the life. Knowledge that separates mind from action. Like a wall that's built one block on top of another. Listen to this. One block on top. The top block represents a bondage. And then just below that are blocks that represent our actions, our lifestyle. And just below that are blocks that represent our values. And at the bottom of the wall comes our thoughts. See how one is built upon another from a single thought upwards when satan came to eve in the garden he used thoughts against her he asked has god really said satan plants a thought and that thought grows and develops and satan continues to move it forward pretty soon there's actual sin that takes place and it moves from thoughts to decisions and then from decisions to actions by which you live out your thoughts. The decision comes from the thought. Pretty soon my actions become a value by which I live my life. It becomes a lifestyle. And when it's in that realm, it becomes bondage. Because Satan is out to steal, to kill and destroy. And he's out to ruin and bring bondage. That's why Luke 4.18 Jesus describes his job when he gives his job description he says this is what he says setting the captives free releasing those who are in bondage we have to address strongholds at the foundational level which means correcting the lies that the enemy either comes from the enemy, probably via our own thoughts. Probably via someone saying something to us and it hits. You probably haven't even thought about what they said, but it hits and it hurts. And then we ruminate on it. We develop it. And we make it bigger. And we make it bigger. And the reality of it is We've believed the lie of the enemy. There are three different battlefronts that we need to be alert to. There's the world, the world system. There's our own sinful flesh, the sinful nature. And then there's Satan and his kingdom. We read about that in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. Here it is. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. There we see the world system. We see Satan and his kingdom. And we see our own sinful nature. It's like a threefold cord. So in addition to addressing the world system and its lies, in addition to repenting of the works of the flesh, 
we also have to take authority over the enemy. Like Jesus did in the wilderness, when I had repented and there was no more place or foothold for the enemy, then we resist him. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. When injustices come our way, we can be hurt. I've experienced them. You've experienced them. Think, that's not fair, God. Let me tell you a story, and with this I'll, I'll close. I, 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 think it, I think I may be related to it in Bangor once. But uh, I um, was preaching one Sunday night, and there was a girl who had been in the church, a woman who had been in the church, was in her probably mid-40s. She'd been in the church for some time. I knew her. Um, I don't think I was preaching on anything that would have sparked this. But I later found out what had sparked it. But she got up and she walked out before the end of the service. And one of the women seen her go and caught her before she went out. And obviously this was at the back of the, the, the auditorium and, and then subsequently, I didn't notice this, but she took her out to my office. And I went out to the office and um, I went out afterwards at, and, and she was there. She was sitting there and she was crying. And, uh, and the girl that took her out just kind of explained why she'd went. And I said, what is it? And she said to me this, I was at a, a wedding of a cousin last week and I met an uncle that I hadn't seen when I was a child, from I was a child. And they had abused me. And nobody knew about it. Certainly her mum, whose brother it was, didn't know about it. And he looked at me. I was, and he looked straight at me and he said, you know, you remember. And I just got out and ran out. I'll call her by a different name, just to give her privacy. And I said, Margaret, I'm desperately sorry. But do you know what you've got to do? And much to my great surprise, delight. She said, yeah, I've got to forgive him. And I explained to her, I says, let me tell you something, Margaret. Forgiving him doesn't get him off the hook. It gets you off the hook. The fact that you were on the hook shows me why you're in here tonight. After 40 years You've been carrying that around that's on the hook. This guy was a, was a no-hoper. He was a, just a... I mean, the, the, the joke about the Newton Arch Road where he came from was that he had to get a blue bus to get a drink, which meant that there wasn't a, a local pub about that would have served him. Had it. And, and she says, yes. And I said, well, can I say this? Margaret, are you prepared to forgive him? And she says, yes. And mean it? Yeah. And she prayed. We prayed together. Something, I believe, something tangibly. Girls still at the church today. Tangibly lifted up. This was, this was 10, at least 10, probably 15 years ago tangibly lifted off her. I explained to her another thing. I said to her this here. 
by you not forgiving him, God can't pour out his judgment upon him because you're holding it back. Once you forgive him, God's judgment will be poured out on him. I believe that. So we prayed, that was it. I was known to the family. I didn't know this guy. But I was known to a number of the family. I would have done funerals for them. They were just, I, I was the whole family's pastor in some ways. And so I got a phone call from one of the brothers and said to me, Pastor George, um, and gave the name of this guy. He's been taken into hospital. And I said, right. And he says he's very seriously ill. And uh, he says, I'm just saying to you here, the doctors have said that there isn't an awful lot of hope for him. This is literally a couple of weeks, within a couple of weeks of this event happening. And I said, right, we're just saying, Pastor, would you bury him when the bit comes to the bit, which is probably weeks away. And I said, look, I'll come back to you. I gave Margaret a ring and I said to her, he's dying. Your prayer of release, I believe, has brought the judgment of God upon him. Now listen to this, because this is, this is going to be an ending that I don't think you would know. So she said, no, I have no problem. I've forgiven him, Pastor. I would like, I'll not be at it, she says, but I would like you to do it. And you know what she said to me? I don't want him to go to hell. And so um, I got another phone call and the guy said to me, he won't take any food. He won't do anything at all. He's, he's obstinate. He won't take medication or anything. So they say, it's not going to be weeks. It's going to be days. So I got a phone call just after he had died, that night, same night that he had died. And the brother came on to me. And he said, I need to talk to you tomorrow when you're doing the funeral. Would you talk to me? And I says, yes, I will. Called him Jim. And I went to Brown's, the funeral, undertakers, and I went in. Jim met me at the door, and he said to this, a strange thing happened, Pastor. Strange thing happened. I went in to visit him two nights ago, and he was in a, a room on his own, and I opened the door quietly. And he's on the floor and he's crying out to God. God, forgive me. God, save me. And the brother who's not saved, they're not a Christian family. I told you. He, said, he says, turns to me and he says to me, does that mean he's in heaven? And I said, I don't know, Billy or Jim. But I can tell you this, if he cried out to God and he meant it, whatever his record was, God will save him. See how, how, how the truth, how powerful things and sources, forces are, are, are coming against every single one of us. See, when injustices come our way, we can be hurt, even devastated. And out of that come reactions and responses that are not godly. Whose was? The enemy is deceitful. He wants to get our focus on injustices and the pain they cause us. And he wants us to feel justified in an ungodly response of bitterness of, or hatred or unforgiveness. That ungodly response provides a place of jurisdiction for the enemy. More often than not, this is how I see us who are devoted to serving God 
struggle with our ongoing strongholds. They fall to the sins that result from an absolute love deficit. She was prepared to, with an operation of incredible, incredible victory and fortitude in the battle to offer forgiveness that offered a way out. Let me, I'm, I'm finishing here now. God is love. She demonstrated love probably more than forgiveness because it had to be love that motivated her. The very fact that she said to me, I, I don't want him to go to hell. God is love and when God created us in his image, one of the fundamental building blocks was that we would experience love, be loved and be able to love. The enemy comes to destroy that at every opportunity. And listen, you are deeply loved. God wants you to live in the fullness of all that he's designed. This is one of my favorite verses. Zephaniah 3.17 The Lord your God is with you. The mighty warrior who saves, he will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you. And instead of that, but will rejoice over you with singing. The scriptures are filled with the truth about God's love for us. But you think about God, not just saying, well, I forgive you, or I'll do, but he actually rejoices over you with singing. Can you picture that? Not the person behind you, the person beside you, the person in front of you, but you, the spotlight. He puts a spotlight on you and he just spins and rejoices over you. You see, one thing that I learned about this guy that is everything that you would feel deserves to go to hell is that God's love was greater for him than the enemy that had manipulated him throughout his life and the contempt that he had for him. Most of the time, we struggle in life because of a love deficit. We really, fully don't understand that God would be excited about us. That God dreams, you know, he, he literally, and that's why I love that Bill Johnson thing. We cannot afford to have a single thought in our head about us that he doesn't have in his. Let's pray. I don't know going to hand over to, to, to Jim in a wee second but I don't know about you and it's not so much so, some of you here this morning I believe need to realize just the, and, and you don't you don't get this by a head knowledge you get it when it hits there it gets into your heart and you realize you, do you really love me God in spite of what I've done and, and in spite of my shortcomings, in spite of the things that I, I thought that I could achieve and, and all I've done is in many ways let you down, do you still love me? I mean, I think of Peter. Peter, do you love me? And he was thinking of all sorts of different ways to describe the feelings that he had for God, but couldn't because he knew he had disobeyed him, he had failed him, he had sinned, he had done all sorts of things. And that was causing a resistance to it. And yet with all, Jesus continued and continued 
I think perhaps even more than knowing the names of God, we desperately need to know the love of God. We need to both. We need both. We need to realize that there's a hell out there that is waging war on the church and on people. God is for us. Let's stand, shall we? Time is well gone. Forgive me for that. But I want to say to you this morning in closing that if, if you want prayer for anything, as, as this whole aspect of God has a name, he has a name. And it's this. I am everything that you need me to be. Healing, deliverance, forgiveness, hurt, love deficit, anger, all of those issues, insecurity, all of those things. I am everything that you need me to be. And I give it over to you right now. So if that's you, even as Chris and Robin play for us this morning and lead us in closing, you come forward. I'm going to hand over to Jim and, and, and Jim will encourage those that of the, the prayer team to come up and, and, and do that. But let me encourage you this morning. I felt, you know, this word strained. I, 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 I had a different word with, which was more in keeping and I struggled with this. And I came, came to Thomas this morning and just explained to him that, that I'd, I'd... So I, I believe, I've, I'm convinced that this word is for at least some of that's here this morning. That you would encounter that in the mighty name of Jesus. Thank you, Chris. Bless you.